Welcome to the Royal City Council Special Meeting of August 16th, 2023. Next call the meeting to order and we'll stand and see Mr. Hanson, will you lead us? I'll be honored to, Mr. Mayor. Salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Roll call, please. Councilor Hanson? Here. Councilor Hoffman-Key? He's absent. Councilor Sprague? Here. Vice Mayor Bottom? Here. Mayor Thomas? Here. Members present, the exception of Councilor Hoffman-Key, sir. Hopefully he's just running late. So the first item on the uh, agenda is government's training. I'll defer to our city attorney or city manager, whoever wants to take the lead. I'm going to let the city attorney's office take the lead. They'll be presenting. I would like to take a moment to point out that uh, through the hard effort of our city clerk, we now have a second monitor. And each each week that we show up for these meetings, we will see something new until it's all in place. Um, 
there are certain um, committees that you as a council can create that are not subject to the Brown Act, and that are those are ad hoc committees. These are bodies that are created, um, committees that are created of less than a quorum of your board, um, of your council, and you may, um, those do not have to be subject to the actual noticing requirements. Um, it also said most private corporations are not subject to the Brown Act, and of course staff, individual staff and the public are not subject to the Brown Act. So these are some examples of some general um, governing bodies that are subject to board of supervisors, district boards, general law and charter cities. And then, like I said, those subsidiary boards and commissions and advisory bodies that are created um, by you as a council or a board of supervisor, for instance, planning commissions, finance authorities, those are, um, that are permanent or temporary are still, if they're created by you for purposes of uh, governing, then um, they will be subject to the Brown Act. Standing committees are subject to the Brown Act, and that's distinguished from an ad hoc committee. And this is a committee that is created um, by the body in a formal action, such as a resolution um, that is going to have continuing jurisdiction over a certain subject matter. Um, generally speaking, um, the meetings that you conduct under the Brown Act should be conducted within the local agency's jurisdiction, so not outside of the, the city. The meeting place that um, cannot, it has to be accessible to those with protected status. You cannot exclude people based on race, race national origin, disability, and the like. Um, the public must be able to gain admission into a meeting without having to make any sort of payment. You'd be surprised that has happened. <laughs> Um, and the agenda that you have for meetings um, must describe each item of business to be transacted and discussed and must provide the time and location of the meeting. Um, what is not a meeting? Nothing in the Brown Act prevents a majority of, of you all from attending events. So you can go to fundraisers, you can go to training events, um, you can um, often things like state fair or county fairs that you may go to and see each other. Um, you can go as long as you are not discussing city business among yourselves. So you can see each other, you can talk to each other, but you can't actually discuss business. Uh, this can be tricky, especially in smaller jurisdictions. You do a lot of things together. There are a lot of community um, events that you attend. I always caution boards and councils to really um, recognize what that public perception may look like. Um, people may see you all together talking, and even though you may be talking about the weather or the latest sporting event, um, it may be assumed by the public that you're talking about city business. So it's important to keep those public perceptions in mind. Like I said, function, party, ceremonies, um, open, open meetings um, of other organizations, um, again, sometimes you may attend county meetings, you may attend state functions, and you may, again, um, attend those with more than a quorum. You cannot discuss them among yourselves um, at this. So this is um, another important thing to bear in mind, that you can go to those things together, you just can't um, talk about the business. There are meetings also are subject um, in the Brown Act to teleconferencing regulations. These have morphed a little bit since COVID. Um, teleconference meetings still do have to comply with Brown Act. Um, all votes, if someone's attending by a teleconference 
meeting must be taken by roll call. There's no general I or nay, it has to be by roll call. The notice and agenda must specify if it's going to be a teleconference and there must be a way for the public to participate in that meeting. Um, they must, like I said, the location of the teleconference must be uh, posted just like you would a normal meeting and it has to be accessible to the public and at least a quorum of the members that are participating must be at the location where the teleconference is um, being held. This is a little bit different because um, during COVID we were allowed to have Zoom meetings and you could all be in different places. Um, it's still the Brown Act is back in play but they have loosened them a little bit and allowed for emergency situations. If you have a resolution or a proclamation of a state of emergency that um, meeting in person is going to create an imminent threat to the public health and safety of either yourselves or the public for attending. Um, you can have teleconferencing availability. This finding of um, imminent risk to health and safety has to be renewed every 30 days. This is a sunset, so January 1st, that won't be the case anymore. I'm sure we'll have even more additional rules by <laughs> then. So this is just um, a repeat, essentially, of what I already went through. So I'm gonna skip over that a little bit, since we have so many. Serial meetings, um, I am gonna spend a little bit of time on this because this is a very important <coughs> issue and it happens um, all the time, unintentionally, with governing bodies. A series of private meetings known as serial meetings by which a majority of the members of the body commit themselves to a decision. And this is an unnoticed situation. There are examples I'm gonna go through after that. Um, there, you can have um, discussions just not um, among the quorum of yourself. So for instance, your staff can reach out to you and um, each individually, as long as they don't convey what you're telling them, I'm gonna give you some examples of serial meetings. Um, that's what I just So there are different kinds of, of serial meetings. One of them is called a daisy chain, and that's if um, one of you emails, um, so, so council member A emails council member B and says, I want to talk about this particular capital improvement project we have coming up. Here's how I think it should go down. You talk about it, you talk about your various opinions. Then supervisor B contacts supervisor, council member B contacts council member C and says, I want to talk about this capital project. Council member A told me this is how they're going to vote. So now you have three council members that know what the other is going to do. So this is called a daisy chain. So you can't tell each other what someone's going to do. More than three people can't talk about that. Hub and spoke is another way, another way you can have a serial meeting, and that is, for instance, if um, your city manager um, wants to reach out to one of you and talk about a particular project or agenda item, and um, she finds out what your opinion's going to be, and then she goes to another council member and says, the other council members I talked to said they're going to vote this way. That is a prohibited serial meeting. So that may be derived from one person, but as long as she's conveying what the other council members said about their opinion about a certain project, it's prohibited. Up and coming, 
wonderfully complex area of this is social media. Um, social media has its place in public agencies. Um, lawyers hate it. <laughs> I'll just tell you, this is right for, for breaching the Brown Act, is, among other things, but it certainly does have its use. Law enforcement is a prime example of that during emergencies. Um, you can, they can get information out quickly and expeditiously and get people to safety much faster. Um, serial meetings, uh, oftentimes uh, council members will have their own web page, um, very common, and they communicate with the public that way. That is fine. You are able to communicate with the public um, about certain issues. Another council member cannot go onto another council member's web page and respond to that. And the courts have been pretty clear about that. You can't even give a thumbs up I like, you can't even give a smile emoji, you can't give a thumbs down, you can't, there's nothing. If you're commenting on that, that means that you're engaging in these discussions outside the public meeting, and it's a, it's a very risky thing. And unfortunately it happens, it's, it's, like I said, social media is very common these days. It's, uh, we'll go through some examples here. Uh, email is another one. Um, an easy way to avoid emails being Forwarded. Sometimes you might get an email from a staff member to all council members, and then if you forward it to someone else, or if it goes to one council member that's being forwarded to another, that can create a serial meeting unintentionally. Um, one of the ways that you can avoid this is to um, use a BCC on it, and that way it won't reply all to everyone, so you don't end up having a particular um, a serial meeting unintentionally. You can say, please do not reply all, but it's much easier if you just use a BCC so that a computer won't let you, <laughs> I have found. So I'm gonna have Carolyn go through some of the serial quizzes to kind of give you examples of how this works and you can um, decide you would answer this whether or not it would be a serial meeting. It's prohibited. This is where you get to be interactive. <laughs> this is like a conversation. Um, so first example, council member A contacts council member B to discuss a proposed building project that the council will act upon in the future. Council member B later contacts council member C and discusses the project and reveals council member A's opinions regarding the project to council member C. Is this a violation of the Brown Act? Yes. Yes. Okay. Why? Serial meeting. Okay. So yes, you're correct. It's a serial meeting. Um, a prohibited serial meeting has been conducted since there was a discussion between a quorum of council members outside of an open public meeting concerning a matter within the city council's subject matter jurisdiction. Okay, well, Marty, Marty's got a good point. Not if there's seven council members, but in Willows, yes, that would be that would be the answer. My curveball question. So example two. One by one, a developer telephones and speaks with each council member for a discussion on the developer's proposed project. During the phone conversation, the developer reveals to the majority of the council members the opinions of other members. Is this a violation of Brown Act? This quiz is simple because you give us the answer. Right here for this. All right, you have to Calling yourself out. If I could just, this is a great example of um, of the hub and spoke. 
that you're talking about. We have one person that's actually creating this environment of a serial meeting where they're actually, you think you're just talking to a developer, to a private person, and you think it's just, you know, you're not anticipating it going out to other people. Um, this is how, you have to be a little bit wary when you're talking to someone if you're worried that they're going to go um, counsel and shopping. Because <laughs> sometimes that happens in certain projects. They'll contact everyone and try to get everyone on board. Um, you have to be, um, I usually recommend that if you are going to talk to someone with the project that's coming before you um, to caution them that they are not to convey um, what you discussed to any other council member. The bigger um, warning is not to divulge what you think you're going to do on a certain project. That deliberation happens right where you're sitting now. In other words, if this project hasn't come before you for consideration, what happens is that that person's going to come before you and give you the information, and you should be making those decisions and after deliberations among yourselves, after public comment, after hearing from staff, not predetermining your decision about those things. So um, I would strongly caution you against um, telling anyone about what you think you would do on a particular project. Question? Yes. Um, I'm a builder and developer. So, uh, several years ago, the then city manager remained nameless. I had a particular project that I was proposing. I was talking with the city manager in regard to his perspective of the project and what we were doing. And uh, he told me, that, quite frankly, that it was going to go nowhere. And I specifically said that that was a decision made by at least three, at that time, planning commissioners. That's where I was at. Planning Commission, given Wednesday night, the three planning commissioners made that decision, and to which that individual told me, yes, and I already know how at least three of them are going to vote. The point is that he then presented my project to at least those three of those members and knew how they were going to vote. Was he subject to being the hub and the spoke and wheel of serial? Yeah, it, it, it does. It depends on whether or not he conveyed um, one of the planning commissioner's opinions to the other two or to another one so more than a quorum of them knew what the other person was going to think. If he talked to planning commissioners individually and knew himself what they were going to say, that's not a Brad Act violation. He can know it as long as he's not conveying it to the other commissioners. I, I, would have, I would have counseled him against telling you what they were going to do. <laughs> Have not considered that to have been probably very prudent, but but that's not necessarily a Brown Act violation in that circumstance unless he conveyed. But of course, there's no way of knowing if he actually surveyed the individuals or just got their opinion or whatever. Yeah, no, he can he can survey them. You can't survey each other, <laughs> and, and you can't. He can find out what they're going to do. He just can't tell the other ones what they're going to do. And I want to follow up too with what Amanda said. Um, I think this the heaven spoke is also a tricky one because you might think it's just a staff member that might you might be talking to and have this issue, but really it could be anybody in the in the public, a developer or anyone's you know that you talk to any day that could be doing be the hub um, that is talking to anybody, a member of the press, a member of the public, a developer, um, somebody at Starbucks. So just remember that when you're when you are talking. And the other thing I want to point out is that if 
could be also that it's not just that who you're talking to that you're telling your opinion about a project or something that is that is not before you um, here in a meeting. It could be something that you're um, you know posting on social media or um, emailing or there's other forms of communication that we do in our lives um, that we might not realize gets out uh, in that our we are expressing our opinions about issues and things and other people, um, and that those things do come back and are circulated, even if it's um, our opinion about an issue that's not before, before us. And I, I think just kind of taking this issue and stepping back and understanding that the purpose of the Brown Act is to allow public participation in the governance of their city. And if you're expressing your opinion before hearing, Everyone, you know, the opinions that the public may want to express, hearing what staff's information the staff may have for you, all of that is what should go into what your opinion is. So if you're already expressing your opinion before something's even come before you, before staff has even briefed you, before the public has even told you how they feel about it, then um, you're probably not giving it a fair shake, quite frankly. So the, the whole point of the Brown Act is to allow the public to be involved in these decision-making processes. So. Um, I do always strongly encourage people not to express an opinion before something's come before you and you've, you've really heard it all out because that's really what the Brown Act's all about, is allowing the public to come here and, and have a say. Can I ask a question? So, um, so, what advice would you give in a situation where two council members are talking about something that could potentially be on the agenda or they would like to be on the agenda um, and sharing their thoughts on that. And one of those two people is not the mayor, and yet the mayor and the city manager set the agenda together, and the city manager's privy to the discussion, but without violating the Brown Act, to put something on the agenda has to share it with the mayor who's not been part of that conversation. And then technically, isn't that a Brown Act violation? Because now I'm sharing that other council members want something on the agenda that wasn't planned, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you do that without having this be a Brown Well, I think they could still ask to have it put on the agenda without explaining what, how they want to vote on it or how they, how they feel about it. True, right. but if, what if the mayor wants to know why are we doing, why are we putting something on the agenda that isn't already planned, hasn't ever been discussed before, maybe it's never come up either on the dais and or it's never been initiated by staff, and then if I know, I just pretend I don't know, or? No, they're, they're um, so, yeah, any council I mean, member it would be, it would be logical that a mayor might want to actually know why are we putting X on the agenda, and if one of those other council members didn't choose him, in this case, to be the other person, it is, it is potentially fraught with some issues. I, mean, I, I will say that most of the public agencies that I represent um, if there is a request by a council member or a board member to have a matter agendized, it's usually agendized. The questions about, I mean, why is this on our agenda can come up in the public as well. So they can come up, I mean, I'll give you my favorite example of crazy agenda items, and that is, without naming my client, an agenda item to determine that it would be a homicide or a murder to kill Sasquatch, and so they wanted a resolution passed that it would be illegal to kill Sasquatch. Bigfoot? Yes. 
So it went on the agenda because the board member wanted it on the agenda. But the first question that came from the chair at the time was, why is this on our agenda? So yes, there is discretion for a, uh, a chairman, the mayor, to say this isn't either the time for it or we've already, often it's, if it's something that keeps getting agendized over and over again, it has been discussed, then there is certainly discretion to not do that. However, um, just finding out if there's additional information, if it's something that's repeat, or what are you looking to have, um, you know, what are we gonna be discussing, that's okay, as long as they're not saying, you know, I want this passed, and there's more than, you know, there are three of them saying that it definitely is, but then, yeah, but even if the, even if that one person is listening to the two of them, you still have three knowing it. Doesn't mean that's how you to vote, but it is tricky. Usually an individual council member should be coming to, to the mayor to request that. Well, yeah. I suppose the other thing you could do is, is the mayor could decide, well, then I, because I want to ask questions about that, I would prefer that that be discussed during council comments, and then we all hear it together, mm -hmm. and we could do it that way, and then it goes on a future agenda after that. Right, so I'm definitely, um, part of the agendas are often reports that you might all give out, and that's a good opportunity to request that an item be put on the agenda and to say, I've, you know, I sit on this commission or that commission, and this is, in my opinion, becoming an issue for the city. I would like to have it discussed. Maybe we invite someone to come give us a presentation, and then it can be a, a, or a resolution for Bigfoot. Or a resolution. Yeah, I read that new, <laughs> I read that new story, man. So that's your camp. Okay. <laughs> it's not all mine, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, does that answer some of your question? <laughs> I guess it was Sorry, I just it's okay. it was helpful. <laughs> uh, okay, so example three. A staff member briefs each council member about a pending project prior to a formal meeting and in the process reveals information about each member's respective views. Is this a violation of the Brown Act? Yes. Okay. You guys are getting good at this. Um, yes, I guess we could keep, I think you guys probably understand what a serial meeting is. Well, this is the last one was helpful. Five. Five, okay. Yeah. Let me get to that. So there we go. Goes to the one by one, the mayor telephones the other council members to inquire as to whether to schedule a special meeting to discuss the pending project. The mayor does not solicit any members' opinions and does not discuss their own opinion. Is this a Brown Act violation? No. No. So this is kind of what we're talking about. So you can schedule and talk about an agenda item or an issue as long as you're not soliciting or talking about your own opinion about the issue. So before we move forward, I have a question. Yes. Um, one of the things that Willis needs is economic development. Is it what? Economic mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. So I've reached out to several folks that I used to work with in the Thailand escrow industry about bringing their projects back to life. And as I'm communicating with them, they've been asked for a letter of support from the city for such an item. And an example would be a steakhouse and a lounge, which everybody, I think, in this room would like to have a safe house and lounge. Um, is, is it something that needs the council needs to discuss to write a letter that says that we need to, we would like to do this? Yes. And, so and the city basically supports the concept. Correct. And this is something that should have probably been mentioned on my very first before we even started the PowerPoint. 
about what your goals are as individual council members. You have no power except as a body. Um, like I said, you're not managing individual people or department heads. You're not um, supporting projects as a um, city of Willows council member. Uh, fixing your um, seal, using it on council members' um, uh, letterhead um, can really only be done um, as a body. You have to have approval for that. So if you are doing letters of support, you would just request that that be agendized and would come up and discuss. And um, often the letters are brought you know, back for the actual members to discuss and talk about and make sure that everyone's on board with what you're actually saying. Um, so often when I have requests for that, I'll say, why don't you draft the letter, ask for it to be agendized, bring it back to the council, and we'll discuss, you know, discuss it in open session, the public can comment on that, um, and then you can agree to authorize it, mailing either by the mayor or to sign it that you're acting as a council, you're not acting as individual members. Thank you. Add on to that then for a little bit of clarity. Um, one of the things I have started doing and thinking that the tank industry, the old 99, could be used uh, a little more advantageously for the city with either new development or cleaning up some of the empty vacant lots and that type of thing. So I've started at the south end of town, gone to the north end of town, of talking to the property owners that I can contact and ask them what is their view of what they would like to see old 99 to Hamer Street look like. And so I've kind of taken a little bit of a survey with that and then presenting to them the idea that we could do something collectively to beautify and make the old 99 a little bit more attractive. And I invited that, and I've not particularly talked to the council about doing this. I did present that idea to them when they interviewed me for my appointment. But am I violating some sort of a protocol or ethical by just talking with them about what they would like to see and getting their ideas of what they might want to do? I would say the better practice would be to bring it to the board. Or I keep saying the board. Sorry, I was at a board meeting earlier today, so my brain is on board. The better idea is to talk about that openly with the council. And um, you know, if you're noticing it, you're having the public come in and tell you directly if you can do outreach. In other words, if you had a social media, you could put that on there. We're going to have this meeting. I strongly encourage people to come and give their opinions. Um, obviously, when constituents, constituents contact you, um, there's no issue with that. There's no Brown Act violation. And there's not technically a Brown Act violation when you're contacting constituents. I will say that there is an appearance that you're acting in the capacity as a councilman without necessarily having the endorsement of the council to do that. Um, I wouldn't say it's a strict violation, but the better practice is probably to, to you know, before getting too far down that road for <laughs> a pretty terrible pun, um, to bring it back and talk about how, um, how they feel about it because you don't necessarily also want to get all the way down there and find out that there's not support either elsewhere in the city or with your council or that sort of thing. You're talking about you know, financial repercussions to that. So starting that process without understanding the full ramifications of that could be problematic down the road. Okay. Well, the, the, I appreciate your suggestion. One of the things that I know that some of those people are not inclined to come make a public statement around what they're doing. 
What is interesting, though, that a couple of the property owners looked at the property and what I pointed out to them as well. And then I come back a week later, the place is cleaned up some. So, uh, well, that's, that's code enforcement, John. <laughs> well, code enforcement, not necessarily, I think, is not the, the first approach. So, <laughs> nevertheless, thank you for your input. Thank Absolutely.
under the 72 hours? Um, in under the 72 hours, it, it, amended. Can you amend it? Yeah. You can give addendums to the agenda. Usually, it's usually within the same 72-hour time frame. It kind of depends on what the change is. Sometimes it's just a clerical issue that isn't necessarily changing what the actual item is, and that can be amended. Um, but if you're adding an item, it has to be within the 72 hours. And here's the problem with legally and morally. Um, if there is an amendment to the agenda, can it be separated so that the person, because we've had in the past where uh, the agenda was posted, people look at the, because they know it's posted at a certain time, they look at it, and then, you know, a day or two before the meeting, then there's an amendment. If people didn't realize there's an amendment to it, and then they got to go through, you know, 100 pages worth of documents to find out what the amendment actually was. I do. There's no obligation to call it out particularly. In other words, um, as long as it's posted publicly um, 72 hours before, it's it's legally posted. Okay, but you said 72 hours. You said that's 72. So 72. special meeting is 24. Regular is 72. So after 72 hours, you can't amend the unless it's an emergency item. In other words, sometimes, especially like during COVID and that sort of thing, or fires, you often have emergency items that need to be on there. Sometimes I've seen um, amendments added in an emergency situation if it's going to significantly stifle funding, for instance. You might have you know, this deadline for a grant that has to go in that sometimes will come on as an emergency item. Because on this agenda and the planning commission meeting for tonight, both of them show amendments. When I looked at this uh, agenda, when it was posted, it was just this presentation. Um, I didn't look at it again until this afternoon, and all of a sudden, the agenda had changed dramatically. Well, I'm not going to speak to a specific thing that happened here, so I don't have all the facts to it, but like I said, special meetings have to be 24 hours in advance. Okay. There are times when a council or a commission can vote to add an item, again, if they consider with the findings of an emergency situation or urgency situation, they can add an item. Sometimes also the amendment, and some of the things I know that Jeff's talking about, is adding the actual content later. Right. You know, like a staff report or PowerPoint that's already on the agenda, but it doesn't actually get posted. For example, there'll be a, a sales tax workshop next week. That PowerPoint will, won't be ready in time for posting the agenda on Friday of this week. And it doesn't have to be. The, the attachments can be added. They just have to be, if they're given to, for instance, council members on the day of the meeting, they have to be provided to the public at the same time. So if it's after that 72 hours, if they're given to the council members 48 hours before, then it has to be made available for the government posted at that same time, right? So this is, um, and it's, I mean, given our conversations here, um, <laughs> Is a public record and 
relates to an agenda item for an open session or regular meeting of the agency legislative body, and the writing is distributed less than 72 hours prior to the meeting, then the writing must be made available to the public inspection when the writing is distributed to all or majority of board members. So that's what we were just talking about, and that's the government code requirement. Yeah, and it's again you have to make it available at the um, place of the meeting as well. Um, public has a right to record, right to videotape, and right to record meetings. Um, uh, I've been in jurisdictions that don't like this, but it's the way it is. They're allowed to record. Um, they're allowed to inspect and um, take the film records in an open public meeting. They're allowed to, um, and, and it has to be free of charge. And you are allowed to still have record retention policies. You don't have to keep recordings of meetings forever. You can re um, just uh, destroy them in 30 days. A question there, I'm sorry. On this, uh, the agency may erase or destroy the recordings 30 days after the taking of the recording? Pursuant to the government code. Now, you don't have to keep them. I would say most jurisdictions do, and they do archive them um, so that they're made available. It's you know, it's not the, the minutes of your meeting are the actual record of the meeting. That's your official record of the minutes that you approve of your council meeting. It's not any recording that you make. The, the problem there I see, though, is we do not take verbatim minutes. And you don't have to. There's no requirement that you do, but there's also no requirement that you actually take um, your own meetings. You don't have to have a video or audio recording of them. Most jurisdictions do, like I said. But again, that's not the, the actual uh, official, it's odd because you know, you're all there, but it's not the official record. The official record's the minutes. Okay, so if we're not taking verbatim and we're destroying the, the, the uh, recording, then what kind of a permanent record do we have that went on, that goes beyond 30 days that actually captures what was discussed and agreed upon during that meeting? Your minutes should discuss that. So your minutes um, should be, should be talking about the topic that you discussed. Um, and some are more you know, robust than others. Some are just action item minutes, where we'll just say, this item came on, and here's what they did, and here were the votes. Um, other minutes will go into more detail about what was actually discussed. Some even go into council member A said the following, council member B said the following. Um, usually it's somewhere in between. That this was discussed, um, here were the I's and A's, here was some public comment on it. Um, either one way or the other, so it's, it just depends on how you do your minutes. But there's no certain amount of detail that has to be included. In it has to record what the action item did um, on that and who voted how, yeah. Can I just add that the Municipal Clerks Association advocates that if you have a recording, that you do um, action minutes and that you don't try to reinterpret what people said, council members or members of the public, because it's kind of a slippery slope if you start trying to literally, you know, write into the document if you're maintaining an audio, which we do so here. So we do action minutes here. And that is supported by the Municipal Parks Association. Right, and I would say that if you have concerns in that regard, it's something that um, you could develop a policy about. Maybe you don't want these recordings destroyed for X, Y, Z, number of months, days, years, you know, that sort of thing. You can decide when it's okay to let go of that audio.
oftentimes jurisdictions will say you have three minutes. Um, sometimes if they represent a particular organization, um, for instance, I've been in a lot of jurisdictions where they have really contentious issues such as cannabis cultivation that come up for discussion and they will give um, representatives of particular cannabis organizations say five minutes, but usually it's about around three minutes. Um, you cannot regulate the content um, of it. That being said, I have had situations where people have chosen to um, bear out their uh, campaigns in public comment and I have stopped that. It's not an appropriate place. There are rules and regulations against campaigning on public property. So um, while you're not generally allowed to tell them what they can and can't say, there are certain other rules that may come in and trump that of campaigns on public property or one of those. Well, that goes to the decorum and, and yeah, exactly. Um, so anyone who needs a translator should be given twice the amount of time. For obvious reasons, you have to have someone who is translating what they're saying simultaneous. Um, if you have public disruption, um, a lot of this happened throughout COVID. We had people just getting really irate about the public health regulations that were coming into effect. Um, and um, boards and councils were left to navigate those waters with their public health officials. And there were many meetings where people had to um, clear the room or have law enforcement there because there was so much disruption. Um, Shasta County is a beautiful example of that. We're still having fun with that. Um, so you have the right um, to, to clear a room if there is disruption. Most jurisdictions have a policy for order and decorum. If you do not, I would recommend it. It's something that people can point to to understand what you know, certain limits are. They're usually fairly big, but um, I would recommend it. It gives you at least some, um, written, uh, some written document to point to. <coughs> this is one that I, I see all the time, and it's public comment is not a debate. Um, it is not an opportunity it's not an opportunity to have the public ask you questions or staff questions in order to get answers. They can say, here are my thoughts about a project, I have the following concerns, um, they might be directed to staff to answer it at a later time offline, um, or recommended to contact a certain staff member. It is not a back and forth between the council and that member of the public, or staff and that member of the public. Um, when that starts to happen is when things start to go a little bit awry, unagendized uh, matters start to be discussed by council members. That, so public comment, obviously, for most things, or at least the general public comment, does not deal with agendized items. So if you're in a back and forth debate with a member of the public on a special um, issue that's not agendized, um, that's a Brown Act issue. Um, so, but even on agendized items, like I said, you take the comments, you hear the concerns, if they have questions, they can be directed to a staff member, but it's not back and forth between staff and the council. Um, for special meetings, there is no requirement that there be generalized public comment. Um, obviously, any agendized items on public on a special meeting do require public comment um, to be given, but not generalized. You don't have to have a, just an open public comment. Uh, most of the time, you do. Um, just just to be transparent, give people an opportunity to speak, but if you are really backed up on a really contentious issue that you think is gonna take several hours on a special meeting for a particular contentious project, it's not uncommon to say we're not gonna have generalized public comment tonight on a special meeting, we're gonna have it um, just on the agenda I <coughs> Um
agenda should contain a brief general description of each item of business to be transacted or discussed at the meeting, including the items to be discussed in closed session. We'll get to those in more detail in a little bit. Agendas must have enough information to enable members of the general public to determine the general nature of the subject matter of each agenda item to be discussed. Um, so, and again, there's a revision that it should not or does not need to exceed 20 words. Um, so just a general description of what it is. Um, and as you have already seen in our agendas, um, it kind of gives us a general description of what the um, action item is, what, we're, what the recommendation is, or what the action item is for the um, agenda item, and then who the contact or staff person is for that agenda item, or who's presenting that item. Um, <laughs> and I apologize, our, looks like our slides got a little out of order. Are there any questions about the agenda item? Like I said, the closed session item, agenda items will more specifically be discussed a little bit later so we can talk about those um, because those are more spe specific for closed session. Um, so we talked about regular meetings. We already went over this a little bit. So members may um, only vote on agendized items in, in the regular meetings, um, but members can also ask questions for clarification. So when we have an agendized item, <coughs> We can talk about or ask for clarification from a staff member when they're giving a presentation. Um, you can make a brief announcement. Uh, you can make a brief report on activities or meetings you've been to um, and provide a reference to staff or other sources for factual information. Um, you can request staff reports to the body or a future meeting, so kind of asking staff to look into something. Um, these are all things that you've already seen um, or you've already done, I should say. Or you can ask staff, um, kind of like what Amanda said earlier, to put something on a future agenda or look into something in the future. And those are all things that wouldn't necessarily be on the agenda, but you can bring up at a meeting. Um, and then we, that's weird. That's yeah, we already talked about the urgency items. We talked about special meetings and emergency meetings. So let's get to the closed session meeting. <laughs> this is another area um, that is probably the single most um, source of ground act litigation uh, are closed session meetings. There, again, this is for public participation, the whole purpose of this. However, um, the Brown Act recognizes that there are certain issues that have to take place behind closed doors and without public participation. And this is just an initial list of what can be discussed in closed session. So that's personnel, litigation, property negotiations, and I'm gonna go through these so I'm not gonna read off that whole thing. So personnel matters, um, like I said before, your, your job isn't to supervise each and every manager in the city, that's um, your city manager's job. But there are certain positions and certain issues that may come before you in a personal, personnel setting and um, personal records of public employees in the state of California are by and large confidential as far as the disciplinary records, not all of them, but um, there are situations when they are confidential. Um, there are also due process rights involved for public employees. So uh, those have to be met before you can, for instance, impose discipline on a public employee. So this allows a governing body to convene in closed session to discuss the appointment, employment, 
employment, performance evaluation, discipline, and complaints about or dismissal of a specific employee or potential employee. The employee has the right to have it heard in public session. And you would think that that wouldn't happen, but I've actually encountered it more um, often than not. Um, they, they want to have their side of things heard in open session um, and be able to respond to allegations in open session. So before you can do that, um, before you can meet in closed session or engage in personnel charges, specific charges have to be brought um, against an employee by another person or employee. The agency must provide the employee written notice of his or her right to have the complaints or charges heard in an open session rather than a closed session. And this notice has to be given to them 24 hours ahead. They're entitled to due process before the time holding the session. If notice is not given, any disciplinary or other action taken by the governing body against an employee based on the specific complaints are null and void. So closed session items, um, you're still on the personnel, have to describe in a general form um, what you are going to be discussing. You're going to be talking about the appointment, and again, you're, you're agendizing the title. You're not putting a specific person's name there. Um, you want to put the position that's um, going to be uh, filled by title. If it's an evaluation, again, you put that this is an employee evaluation of whatever the title is of that particular employee. If it's dis uh, discipline or dismissal or release, uh, that's all you put. You don't put any other additional information down there. You don't say what the title of the position is or who it is, because again, like I said, that's a confidential situation and they're entitled to due process. For personnel, the governing body must report action taken to appoint, employ, dismiss, accept the resignation of, or otherwise affect the employment status of a public employee in closed session out um, at the public meeting during which the closed session is held. So you go into closed session, talk about it, you come back out and you report what you did, who voted, what you voted to do. The report must identify the title of the position. The report of a dismissal or of a non-renewal of an employment contract must be deferred until the first public meeting following the exhaustion of administrative remedies. So once, if you were to make a decision that you were going to dismiss someone, you don't report that out this, at this public session. Because again, that person has appeal rights. They have to go through certain steps to appeal that. And then, and only then, after that exhaustion has been satisfied, do you report out. Litigation. The governing body may convene in closed session to discuss legal counsel pending litigation when discussion in open session concerning these matters would prejudice the agency's position in the litigation. Um, this is obviously very critical. You don't want to waive attorney-client privilege. Um, so it is important, and any lawyer is going to tell you that discussing in a pending, any position in a pending litigation in open session could potentially affect that. I do not discuss litigation in open session. Um, it's just, it's a, essentially a waiver of attorney-client privilege. You don't know if the facts you're talking about um, at that open session are going to be somehow critical to the litigation down the road, and that essentially will give rise to a waiver of attorney-client privilege. So I do not discuss litigation um, in open session. Litigation is pending when any of the following circumstances exist. Um, obviously, if we're a um, party, and it's been you know, sued, um, 
a point has been reached when, in um, your opinion as a counsel, that your legal counsel has basically told you there's a significant exposure to litigation. So sometimes you hear about facts, um, your lawyer may go, oh gosh, that's, that's going to expose us to a certain level of risk. I need to talk to you about what that level of risk is. We need to go in close session to do that. Um, and three, based on existing facts and circumstances, the government bodies will be only to decide whether closed session is authorized. So you are allowed to go into closed session to discuss with counsel to even determine if it should be in, in closed session. So if you're talking about these, hey, um, you know, city attorney, we found out these particular facts. We're not sure if we should be discussing this in open closed. You can go into closed and have her make that decision. Um, but yes, I think it is a significant exposure needs to be enclosed, or no, I think this is something that we can discuss in open session. Question there for me, please. Make a distinction for us, the distinction between pending litigation, which would be something that you would actually know of what you have to report, or have agendized and then report out, as opposed to anticipated litigation, which then allows for discussion of existing facts and circumstances, but you don't necessarily, under anticipated litigation, have to identify any specifics about an accident on the corner of two streets or whatever. Right, so, and this is, you know, sort of kind of changed in the last year about what you have to put on your agenda and what you don't. So if you've received a letter saying, I think you all violated the Brown Act, and here is your cease and desist letter and the correction. Um, I'm going to discuss that with you in closed session under anticipated litigation, and that claim letter with, and that threatening letter would probably have to be attached to the agenda um, because I have a writing that's telling me I'm making a threat of litigation versus, um, like you said, knowing that something happened or knowing an employee engaged in certain behavior that may give rise to to litigation. So would not then, if you had an actual letter like you're talking about, would that not then be classified pending litigation versus anticipated litigation? Pending litigation is something that's already started. So okay. like a government tort claim could sometimes qualify, but there's liability claim abilities to take that to closed session too. So pending litigation is something that you already have. There's a lawsuit, you're in litigation, you have a counsel. Anticipated litigation, or significant exposure litigation are the two that are pretty close and kind of fall into the same category. But, and the distinction is um, really significant risk of litigation is often something that I will say, okay, I'm aware of certain facts. Um, if this goes down the way I think it's gonna go down, I'm gonna tell you what I think is gonna happen and that maybe you're gonna get sued. That's gonna be significant exposure litigation if I'm aware of a certain I don't know, employee activity that may give rise to litigation. Anticipated litigation is, we have a government tort claim, this person's threatened litigation, um, they're coming to public comment telling me they're gonna sue you, that's probably more anticipated. If you have a writing that's, a, that's like that, that's not like a tort claim, but like a letter like I told you about, we're gonna sue you for it, that has to be attached and you have to describe that in the agenda. Thank you. Quick follow-up on add, that question. Just to add, I wanna add to that too, I mean, that's what, you know, she mentioned that in all those cases that the city would be the defendant, and there are some situations that um, some of the options are the city is the plaintiff, um, that there might be that's an initiation. Right, yeah, okay, so that's well, an option that would be the initiation. Right, so yeah, so if, if another another form of litigation, that might be on the next slide, is, is if you all are, are in, 
embroiled in a conflict where you may have to say sue a contractor for breach of contract, that's initiation litigation. And that's when you go into closed session and decide are you going to tell her to sue um, on, on the city's behalf? Well, let me, let me add better understand this a little better because I think one of the operative words here is prejudice. In other words, if we actually have anticipated litigation and we do divulge it on the agenda and that person or somebody reads that and says, oh, I had no idea, I might be able to sue the city. That sets the prejudice then, right? Well, if, if they have threatened litigation, that's where that new regulation came in. And if you have that anticipated litigation and it's in the form of a writing, you're supposed to attach that. Okay. Um, I don't see that very often, quite frankly, because the other part is like a government tort claim or, or liability claim, which you're allowed to discuss in closed session. You do not have to attach it. You still have to name the parties involved, so it's the same basic, the same basic um, premise, and that's all public record. So anyone can ask for your government tort claims and. And if it's, those. if it's in an open, if it, the threat is in an open meeting, you do not have to include that. I'm sorry, if it's... Right, if, it's not right. If the threat is in an open meeting, then you do not have to include the specifics in the uh, yes. agenda item. Right. So, sorry. And we had that example recently. Right. have significant exposure litigation if the agency officer employees is a party or has significant exposure concerning prior or prospective prospective activities or alleged activities during the course and scope of that officer employment. Um, this includes litigation where it's a question as to whether or not the activity is in the course and scope of employment. Um, so and that comes up more than you think. And I'll give an example if a law enforcement officer engages in um, inappropriate conduct under color of authority, for instance, is that in course and scope? Is he using his law, office, his law enforcement status um, as a way for him to engage in his core conduct or not? So those kind of questions you have to determine. Is this within the course and scope or outside the course and scope? And that we can discuss in those Designate someone who's going to negotiate on behalf of the agency. 
the purchase, sale, exchange, or lease of real property by or for the agency. You have to hold an open and public session where you identify in negoti its negotiations the real property that is the subject of the negotiations, with whom they will be negotiating, um, both your agent and the agent on the other side, and what you'll be discussing. Are you gonna be talking about um, the uh, price? Are you gonna be talking about um, the location, that sort of thing? You can't discuss, and it is difficult. So negotiated parties of property, um, and whether it's concerns price, the terms of payment, or both. That's all you're allowed to talk about post-session are the price and terms of payment regarding your property. It's very difficult to actually um, talk about negotiation of real property um, in post-session at all because, of course, when you're talking about price or terms of payment, that often is coming sometimes with a discussion about which property you're really looking at. Well, if they come in at this price, then we might go with that property. If we look at this price, they might go with that property. You can't talk about which property in closed session. That has to be all done in open session. So you have to only talk about the price in terms of payment in closed session in regard to the property negotiations. Labor negotiations. Um, you are able to discuss labor negotiations. Um, you have to, again, designate a labor um, representative and you can talk about salaries and salary schedules and compensation and the contract terms. Um, so this, of course, is involving MOUs with your employee organizations that can be discussed in closed session. The contract that ultimately gives rise to the MOU itself must be approved only in a session. Um, and for purposes of labor negotiations, elected officials are not considered employees of the agency. In fact, they're not really considered employees of the agency except for things like benefits. Um, again, this is just telling you what you have to have the um, agenda state. Liability claims, we went over this already essentially. This is your, your public entity claim, your government tort claim. You have to say who the claimant is and who the claim is against. So of course it would be against the city of Willows and most um, security of public buildings and services. This is relative, not new, new, but um, you're allowed to discuss that. You're worried about security of public buildings and right of access um, to public services and facilities. You're able to talk about license applications for people with a criminal record. Um, that's not to protect the agency, that is to protect the person applying for the actual license because their criminal record is not public record. Um, and then threat to public services or facilities is, can also be held in um, closed session to talk about whether or not someone is making threats, talking about a bomb threat or something like that, or you have people who, uh, I've often seen disgruntled employees make threats or um, to either other employees or to facilities themselves. You're really able to talk about that in closed session as well. Disclosure and reporting. Um, this is another area that that uh, is ripe for litigation because um, the public often feels that not enough is reported out. Some of that comes from a lack of understanding on the part of the public as to what can and cannot be discussed in closed session. And some of that comes from improperly reporting out, quite frankly. Um, it's not to say that the, the items aren't being properly discussed in closed session, but you do have to um, report out certain things, and that is, um, if, oops, sorry, 
uh, if you're taking final action in a closed session, say on a contract, you're agreeing to it, and the last signature, say you settle a case, and the last signature on the settlement agreement is of whomever you've authorized to do it takes place in closed session. That has to be reported out. Votes have to be reported out in closed session along with who voted and how. Um, you know, do you take minutes to be closed? No. Yes, some, and, and I asked if there were minutes kept in closed session and um, they can be taken in closed session if there is a policy for it. I never recommend it because, again, I've seen attorney-client privilege waived um, multiple times when things are leaked out in closed session, and um, it's devastating to litigation to have that happen. I do not recommend that minutes be kept of any closed session meetings. Um, and again, you wouldn't be doing it for one and not the other. This is a policy-driven situation, uh, not necessarily a picking and choosing what you would take minutes for and what you wouldn't. Um, documents that are finalized, again, this is like I said, if you sign a settlement agreement or something that's finalized in closed session, it must be made available to the public on the following day. Question. Are we as members in closed session allowed to keep our own personal notes of what we discussed or not? I'm not a fan of that, quite frankly, because what you keep yourself um, is public record. Um, you shouldn't really be taking notes in public in closed session. Any documents that are distributed in closed session for purposes of giving you information about a topic, say, of litigation, um, um, should be collected by the attorney and kept. Nothing should be retained by you coming out of closed session. And the reason for that is closed session is extremely confidential. And breaching what happens in closed session is not just a ground act violation, it's a crime. And I, it's, I, I cannot say that enough. Um, there are often um, individuals who think that, you know, oh, if I just say this and that, it's going to get to the public and it's going to be this, you know, it's going to be taken care of or whatever I want to have happen, it's going to happen. It is a crime for anyone to disclose anything that's happened in closed session. So by keeping notes and taking notes or keeping documents that are distributed in closed session, that's just a, a much greater risk of having closed session items divulged. So. Um, what prompts that question is, of course, I'm 70 years old, so sometimes I don't remember everything that I said or what may have gotten said. But also, I anticipate sometimes that we would go into closed session maybe two or three or four times on a particular item. Mm -hmm. And so just for my personal skill set, for lack of a better word, that I keep notes on those types of things so I can recall what was discussed before. And, and maybe could go on for a period of maybe six months, and I'd want to be able to review what was discussed and be able to make a fully informed decision based on new information that might come in. I would strongly encourage you to let the note-taking rest with your attorney and have that summary of what occurred stay with her because that remains attorney-client privilege and it's not disclosable. Um, and that's with one person who has not only the ethical obligation under the Brown Act and as your city attorney, but through the state bar. Um, we lose our bar license if we disclose um, our clients' secrets, <laughs> so to speak. So um, I, I would highly encourage you to, um, and you know, our stuff's not, not subject to public records after request as far as attorney client privilege material. Okay. So I would encourage you to allow that record keeping to take place with counsel. With counsel during the meeting. So our, our, our city attorney could be doing that. Yes. She would keep track of what was, what was, um, direction was given 
because the direction is usually going to be, especially if you're meeting on something like litigation, it's going to be direction to her. Okay, so if I heard or said something that was there in the meeting that I thought would be important to memorialize, would it be wise then to point that out? You can ask her to take to the take that. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Certainly. Could he pass his notes to the attorney to hold for the next meeting? Um, he's the one drafting something. He's the one drafting him. Um, yeah, I, I would say, I, mean, I don't want her to be the custodian of his records and notes because I don't think that changes necessarily the public nature of them. The, the materials that she keeps are work product and attorney client privilege. And they're still confidential in the closed session, so even if you're keeping them, yes, we have a really good argument that there are notes of closed session and that they're still private, but judges don't always understand the Brown Act the way we do either. Um, and so that's just one more argument to give another attorney. So not all decisions must be reported. Some examples of items that must be reported are real estate agreements, approval of lawsuit initiation or intervention. So if you go to closed session and you give direction to city attorney to initiate litigation on your behalf, you would come out in open session and say, direction of staff was given to initiate litigation in the following manner. Um, settlement, if the action is final, just because you decide to settle a case and give direction for, for city attorney to negotiate under certain terms, um, it's not final until it's signed off on. So if you're not signing the settlement agreement in closed session, which most likely would not be, that would be something that would be done as the last signature. In other words, usually you're signing and then it's going to someone else. Um, it does not have to be reported out in the same way that it would be if it were the last final move to finalize the settlement in closed session. So for instance, if the agreement is settled, if the case is settled, and the settlement agreement's been circulated, and the other side has signed off on it, and the only remaining signature is whomever you authorized to sign it, and that happens in closed session, yes, you have to come out and say, this case is settled, long term, settlement agreement's available. Otherwise, if you're not the final signature in closed session, um, and it goes to the other party finally, that gets reported out. Usually, um, agencies report that out in bulk. So they'll say, they'll pick a few times a year and say the following cases were settled um, and settlement agreements are available for review. Um, public agency settlement agreements are not confidential. They're public record unless they involve juvenile or criminal situations um, that have otherwise created privacy issues. They're available to the public to review. Um, agreements with labor unions. Um, they don't, again, like I said, you don't have to report that out until the MOU is being um, approved by you all, and then that happens in open session. And again, actions affecting employee status um, um, do have to be reported out in the same meeting. Um, again, the agreement with, I just want to say, it's a similar situation with the agreement with the labor union. You can, you can report out direction staff to give it, but once it's finalized, it has to be done in open. Um, I've also seen this sometimes allowing too many people in closed session. Um, really only the governing body and the support staff necessary for the, the issue you're talking about should be in closed session. You can have legal consultants and legal counsel, negotiators. Um, even now, they've expanded it to having other agency, um, if you're having kind of a joint agency, for instance, if you're both being sued and you want to have a joint defense situation, you can meet closed session, you can have those people along with you, it's very unusual. But really only the people 
um, necessary to that issue should be there. So if you have several closed session items and one of them is a labor negotiation and the other one is a litigation, once the labor negotiations are discussed with your labor um, representatives, only with your labor representatives, that should conclude and then income your people for a litigation situation. You shouldn't have them all in the same room waiting for their turn. Um, again, for litigation, I would be kicking them out. It's a breach of attorney-client privilege if an uh, unessential party is sitting there in closed session anyway. So, okay, Brown Act violations. So we've talked about all the ways that you can violate the Brown Act. What happens if we do, or if that does happen? Um, so there's an ability to request to cure. So sometimes um, if there is that request um, to cure the violation, for instance, if something's done in closed session uh, and there can be a request to fix the issue, so have that um, item heard in open session, for instance. Um, that's probably the first level or the, the most simple fix, right? I'm just talking about it. So um, on the request to cure, that is a prerequisite to suing the city for Brown Act violations. An, an administrative remedy is required. You have to submit a letter setting forth to the governing body what you believe to be the Brown Act violation. You have to um, demand that they cure it, and then you have to ask them to cease and desist from doing it again, and then the agency has I'm going to say it's 60, 30 days, 60 days to cure, if you're wrong on the days, to cure it. Once it's cured, is it 30? Okay. Um, then once it's cured, there's no lawsuit. They, they can't bring a lawsuit. So it doesn't, it's not as if once you fix it, they go back. The only time they can continue with the lawsuit under the Brown Act, if you've cured, is if they feel it's going to continue. If they have no assurances that this Brown Act violation isn't going to keep on going. Usually the Brown Act violations are... Um, distinct, you know, they didn't report out, we think they met closed session, you know, erroneously, it's very difficult to prove since you, that's a very confidential setting, but that's often one of them. If it's something like the agenda is non-compliant with the Brown Act, or they consistently meet in places they shouldn't meet, that's not noticed, that might be an example of something that's continuing, but usually it's distinct, you didn't do this on this day. But they have to file that, they have to serve that letter um, in order to bring a lawsuit. Question. Is there a time frame in which that period correct needs to be done after the violation? I mean, is, it, is there a statute of limitations? 30 days, 60 days, five years? There is. I think they have 30 days to cure it. They, they do, but he's asking how long it has to, to bring the, um, I want to say it's 105 days, but I could be wrong on that. It, it's in, it's in the, the government, the government code. Um, I can probably look it up and get back to you before the end of the meeting. <laughs> I'm going to look it up right now. That's okay. Cool. Okay. Um, the, the civil action she was talking about can be debated by a private party or the VA. Um, I think one of the, and then criminal charges is another, another um, consequence that could happen. I think that the other, the biggest issue that we should be concerned with is that the invalidation of the action or one of the bigger issues because then all of the work that we've all done um, is invalidated right and, and 
basically the, the time and effort spent by the entire council, the public, the staff, um, are overturned, and we're back to where we started. <clears throat> and then, obviously, the financial cost to the city, along with attorney's fees, if the city is, uh, in fact, in violation of the Brown Act. Any other questions?
can't take those back. And so um, it, it, the, the reason that those ramifications are so grave is because the matters that are discussed in there do require some level of confidentiality until it's resolved. Um, just like if you were to go to your attorney's office, you wouldn't expect them to be talking about your case around town. And that's really what we're talking about, is, is violating that, that privilege and that confidentiality. So it is. Um, the criminal charges are you know, misdemeanors. They can be ongoing. Um, you really can't cure breaches of confidentiality in, in a closed session. Um, the fiduciary liability of individual electeds, when you take that oath, it's not just that you take an oath to certain people, but you also undertake a fiduciary obligation. And people can, can call you on the carpet for that as well. And that's a personal liability. That's not a joint liability. That's not a um, kind of misdemeanor fine situation. That's, that's something that is, um, you know, that can, can damage you um, as, as elected. So I do, I say this to, to all of our clients, it's so critically important to really keep it, keep it quiet. And Amanda, as our litigation partner at the firm, what would your advice be to other members of the council if there were allegations of, of post-session meetings being leaked? I think you have to address it. I mean, I, I think it has to be addressed and how you go about doing it and that might be, you know, um, a phone call from me, perhaps, you know, saying it, really driving home the ramifications of that. Um, I, I hear a lot, well, I thought it was important that the public know this. Um, it's, the public is not entitled to know about the ins and outs of litigation for good reason. I can't defend um, the city if all of our strategies or the facts that we know or all the things that, that go into protecting the city are leaked out. That does not help anyone. It exposes the city to greater liability and greater attorney's fees motions and greater um, verdicts and the like. It's it's very detrimental. Um, so uh, yeah, it has to be addressed. And I, it's always awkward. It's always horrible um, to say something's happening in closed session. But ironically, <laughs> because you can get sued for that, it is something that could be brought about um, in a closed session. I have an observation here, please. You used a very pungent word, fiduciary responsibility, fiduciary responsibility. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people usually connect that strictly with financial activity and so on. But contract law has taught me that I have a fiduciary responsibility to be trustworthy as a contractor. And uh, business law has taught me that same, same type of thing. It That's goes right. beyond just the financial aspects. As, Trust with your behavior, trust with what you're keeping confidential or what you're exposing and so on. That's correct, and lawyers have it too. It's not just about the finances, not just about keeping our trust accounts square. It's about representing you, not violating um, confidentiality. It's not just, and the lawyers have dual, and in a way you do too. We have attorney-client privilege not to disclose attorney-client privilege information to others, but we also have a duty of confidentiality my client may tell me something that could come out in the public and I may hear it somewhere else. If I've heard it somewhere else, it's not attorney-client privilege, but I'm not going to be the one to say it because I have a duty of confidentiality to my clients. And it's the same here. Like you may, if, if it's a breach of closed session allegation, you're breaching attorney-client privilege, which by the way, only the counsel as a whole can waive. Not one individual can waive that, that privilege. But there's also that duty of closed session confidentiality that nothing leaves out of for 
succession. There's reasons for that. But the fiduciary obligation extends much beyond that. It's an ethical issue. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Attorney's fees cases in Brown Act violations is the um, probably biggest risk as far as dealing with those cases. Um, they don't have to, uh, you can invalidate it and they can be happy with the invalidation of the act because you did something um, that you weren't supposed to do in the Brown Act, but they're entitled to attorney's fees for bringing those litigations. Um, if that case goes all the way to trial, you're looking at $150,000, $200,000 in attorney's fees for something that is pretty avoidable. So it's, um, you want to avoid those Brown Act. Violations. I mean, not just for the reasons that it's the law, but also for why well, you're sitting there. Public, like this 
when this public isn't adhering to that, you are able to warn them, let them know this is what we expect of you. We expect this, even if this, you, know, you get three minutes, but you need to be respectful. You're not going to be yelling at our staff. You're not going to be yelling um, and being disrespectful or, or you know, cussing or whatever it is, um, and then give that warning. And there's a couple different options. I know that myself and one of the other partners have actually put on trainings on how to handle disruptive meetings, <laughs> a whole training on it. Um, and one of the other options is um, not only to have them removed, but also to just shut down the meeting at some point if it's getting out of hand, because that is also the problem. Yes, we want an open meeting, we want the public to participate, but we're not here to create a, a circus um, or a dangerous situation for the staff and for the council either, or even for the public. So if it gets to that point, that is our project that we can shut down a public notice meeting also. So don't be afraid of those things either. Those aren't brown act, brown act violations
So yeah, these reminders are, um, again, social media, we just wanted to remind you. Um, social media is subject to the Public Records Request Act. I just wanted to remind you that, that if you are engaging with the public on your social media, whether it's public settings or not, um, that is part of the Public Records Request. So if we get that in the city, we would have to go then therefore ask for your public social media records and we could technically have to disclose that to um, that request. So, so are also texts and emails. So if you are using your personal phone for city business and someone requests a Public Records Act request for all texts between Council Member A and a member of the public or between Council member A, staff member, um, and they ask, including your personal, um, we have to do a search of that. I, I don't recommend using the same phone <laughs> for that. I recommend keeping them separate if you can. It's not to say they get out your personal thing, but you would have to turn over your phone um, to IT and have them extract, um, you know, do searches and extract that information. So that's the San Jose case that's up there. Um, it's um, alive and well and being used uh, very, very frequently lately with PRA requests to try to get information. So that's going to be texts, it's going to be emails, it's going to be social media accounts that they have um, access to. Not your personal ones, but any work-related if you're, if you're using your device for both. And why I brought this up is because, um, you know, social media is so rampant and everybody seems to be using it these days. So when we're, you know, when, when you're engaging on social media um, with the public, and, and it's very common for council members to be using it to engage the public about issues, especially in Willows and everywhere, about what what's what the public's passionate about. Um, those are all things that we can request, that we have to turn over. So just keep that in mind when, when you're using those platforms. Let me ask something in regard to that too. Okay. Get a little clarity on the cell phones. I hate having two cell phones. But one of the first things I did now, I have my own personal computer that's strictly, and thank you to the clerk for helping me get that set up so that I'm using that strictly for my business, city business related stuff. So in the event that somebody did ask for public information on my computer, that would be the one that I would have to release. But let me get clarity then on the, on the emails or texts, rather. Um, boy, I just hate having to have two phones for that. But at the same time, there might be some texts on there that I don't want anybody else being at. Some things I might say to my wife, let's say. Right, and so currently the standard that we're using, and that's not to say a court wouldn't order to go beyond that, is to make a request of the employee to search their phone for um, records, text, and emails on their phone that would fall into the category. We would tell you what their category of, of documents were. Um, and then we would tell them yes or no, they have them or they don't have them. If the person has reason to believe that you're not being, not you, but I mean, if the person isn't being truthful about it, um, say for instance, they have a text from you or to you that you're saying you don't have, um, 
then the court may order that to be um, turned over to someone who would pull it off and turn it over to the, to the court or to the other party. So there is that possibility, but right now it's, it's really the employee searching um, their own device. But like I said, I, I would see that expanding rather than narrowing. really is 
using that title and your position as an elected to um, something to attach to something that hasn't been approved as a council. So you're, so that is something to keep um, keep an eye on. Um, like I said, I've had a few other situations that have been kind of crazy areas where, again, small communities where they want to use. Um, their name to kind of attract people to good causes, and, and the, the, the reasoning is, is noble. I mean, they're trying to get more people to be involved in something. Um, if you want to do that, there's nothing that prohibits you from coming to the council and saying this nonprofit has this great event or whatever. Um, do you want to you know, send a letter of support, or do you want to um, do something like that? It's just when you're acting independently as a council person to try to get people to to think that your sponsorship at a certain dinner, for instance, is through the council is, is problematic. Um, and campaigning, I see that um, a bit. It's not an ethics, it's not a financial interest from a uh, conflict of interest situation, but I have seen um, people from the dais um, campaigning saying you should vote for this person, you should vote for that person. There are very specific FPPC guidelines about campaigning on county property, on county time, um, that's not allowed. I try to stop it. <laughs> sometimes I'm successful, and sometimes the words coming out of their mouth, I'm like, no, I can't do that. So um, just be aware of that. It's, 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 um, there are some tricky things. Like I said, if you're all ever worried about what you're doing as far as um, uh, using your position um, for certain situations that you feel might be a conflict or really moving toward more personal gain than actual gain for the city, just contact the FPC. I just wanted to end with the hypotheticals. I think these are um, kind of real world examples. These actually came from one of our other partners' experiences, Margaret's experiences. You'll, you know Margaret or you'll, you will know Margaret. <laughs> um, so I think it's on page 63 of your packet. Slide 126, hypothetical number one. At last week's board meeting, uh, during the public comment period, an angry citizen yelled at the chair, you scumbag, you don't care about other people, you are unfit to represent the community, we deserve better, you're a careless, insert yeah. Although the chair demanded that the citizen stop her insult, she continued, at the chair's request, the clerk shut off the microphone before the citizens had a lot of time to comment was over. The chair directed this next speaker to begin speaking. Are there any concerns with that? Thoughts? Receive the public comment. What's that? Receive the public comment. Receive the public comment. Yeah. So the, yeah, since it was cut off. Oh. I, I will receive the public comment. Thank right, you. but she was cut off, right? Oh, she, oh I see. She, well, no, she shouldn't have cut off. Yeah. No. So, so the microphone was. I'm sorry, I thought you were. That's okay. I was asking. Yeah. Receive the public comment. Yeah, so she, so she was cut off, the microphone was turned off, and she was no. told to sit down. No. Um, so the issue there would be that she really didn't get, yes, she was being, maybe being disrespectful and using a cuss word it looked like, um, but she shouldn't have been cut off and told to sit down and certainly not um, not giving her a lot of time. Perhaps maybe warned um, to not use, you know, nasty words and maybe to keep her voice down, but um, should be able to give her full Three minutes or whatever it was. Yes. Well, you know, track the three minutes. <coughs> There's a really cool 
great cue to question. <laughs> Everybody has a little phone these days. Learn. There's, there's even something you can put up there that starts the clock on the laptop. It'll start it and it'll come up to your screen and lets them know how much time they have left. And um, there's a less. Would the council like us to track the three minutes? You know, historically, yes. historically, we never had here, except rare occasions on, you know, sometimes public hearings, you know, it's been well noticed, but we've never done it. I think a, a so really good keep it in check. And I think a really good thing would be for the council to consider at some point to direct the staff or me um, to draft a, a policy of decorum of some sort um, if we don't have one already. Surrounding the cities, surrounding their sisters, surrounding cities. Yeah, oh, you're right, yeah, so it's always, yeah, exactly. And, and that would be at an agendized meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Councilmember, what were you just saying? You said surrounding cities. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, actually, we're sorry. You were saying something oh, no, about surrounding cities. I didn't want to step on your comments. No, I, like I said, historically, we, we never had here. Uh, you know, the chair always, you know, allows the public to, you know, see they feel they, you know, what they want to say what they need to say, and we receive the public comment. Uh, we've never gone that route. I know many surrounding jurisdictions have, including our sister city, Orland, uh, uses a timer. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, and again, it's up to the mayor to keep it in check, you know, keep it in check. And, but uh, we've never, we've never gone that route. And that's, it's nice that it doesn't sound like you had to, and um, maybe it's something you just, Think about for really contentious issues if you're having a project where you know you're going to have questions. Like, as I've seen lines out in the door places where you, sure. you know, you're never going to get to the issue if it doesn't have some limitations. Well, like I say, we have done yeah. a handful of times. Yeah. I've been on the campus since 2008. That's great. A few times, you know, and, and just with a reminder, you know, please you know, watch the repetitive comments and that sort of yeah. thing. You know. yeah. But let the public be heard and receive the, receive the public comment. Sorry, I, I just have a quick question, which is this. If, if we don't have one, we, I believe I'm hearing that we have the ability to say, you know, please wrap it up. If we do have one, it doesn't mean we have to stop that at three minutes. I would like to see the timing set up so that in the case of the example and the hypothesis here, we could use that to stop that particular diatribe. The issue is, though, that if you don't have a policy, um, and you let somebody go over, then you have to let everybody have the same amount of time. And if you do have a policy, you need to give everybody the same amount of time. So um, you can't let just one person go over and not, and then hold everybody else to the same amount of time. So the, the advantages for the policy would be that it's the same amount of time um, for everybody. And I've seen in our meetings that we've had a couple times people come up more than once. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. And that would stop that because you get your one public comment with your three minutes. Well, it's also, yeah, public comment is like a one-time, a one-time thing. There are circumstances sometimes, for instance, when you have a, when you have a project that has um, a pretty extensive presentation, you have public comment, then staff may answer a few of the questions and then someone else wants to come back up and reiterate or it's been closed and someone who didn't speak before wants to come up and you have the ability to reopen the, the chair can reopen the, the public comment would be 
generally speaking, um, repeated trips to the podium is not appropriate. <laughs> it isn't by definition. I mean, for, for the same agenda item. I mean, they come over for every other agenda item. That's not the So by definition, if the person returns to rebut, that's wrong in public comment. Yes. Yeah, no, because it's not a debate, right? What are they right. rebutting? You're just being, they're just being heard. So it's not a back and forth. And so it's it's really a one-time thing for agenda items. Um, I mean, there's an efficacy to what you do, too, right? You want to keep things moving. You want to keep um, staff back to work if they need to get back to work, that sort of thing. So it's... Generally speaking, it's one time. Well, we certainly experienced that many times, the, the, the repeat comments, repeat comments. Yeah. Um, the other thing, in my experience, sometimes that um, the reason that happens frequently is that the public wants more access to the council and the staff to have iterative dialogue and discussion about certain hot topics. And so sometimes a way that you can manage that is by having more of a study session or a town hall that then says we're not going to do the three-minute thing for this particular topic. We're having a study session on issue X, which is a hot-button issue in the community, or a town hall meeting. And then you, you, know, you could waive the three-minute for that particular meeting. And sometimes when you do more of those kinds of meetings, it helps to address some of the pent-up frustration that the public might have on certain issues. And then controlling the three minutes during a regular meeting becomes a lot easier and there's less pent-up anger and frustration. So that's another maybe possible way to address um, some of the public's frustration. As long as not more than two at the town hall meeting. Well, if it was identified, though, like a regular meeting, we allow them to be right? yeah, Usually a town hall is with one or two. But a study session. Well, it has to be a study session. Okay, you can't call it a study session. So it could be a special study session at the special meeting that the council decides to wait the three minutes for that on a special. Well, they can they can they can not enforce the three minutes for anything. I think if it's a hot topic, then having one or two council members um, have a town hall about it, two others can have separate. They just can't be together. So you can have town hall meetings, but we can't call a meeting a study session to discuss a matter that's under the jurisdiction of. So they can't have a study session on a hot button issue that is publicized, agendized. No, as a, a study session is, an, um, is educational. So like this, like training, for instance. But what if they choose to agendize it? They still can agendize it and all five of them be here? If they no, they can, have, and they can have a meeting. How do a special meeting right, on just, just a single topic? Sure, they can have a special they can have a regular meeting on a single topic if they want, and they don't have to confine the time on it at all if they don't want. If you're talking about just a regular process. Um, I guess I was thinking that with one single issue, regardless of what we call the meeting, mm -hmm. that's agendized, that's on a single hot button issue that they could all come to, it allows the public to have more access and to be able to speak on it more. And it's like more conversation, it's iterative dialogue that makes it maybe easier to waive the policy that we might put in, set in place for regular meetings. Because like you just said, if you, if you waive it for one person at a regular meeting, now you need to wait if everybody has to get the same thing, right? So I was just trying to look Yeah, they don't have to enforce. Yeah, you can have it on a single topic. But she also says you don't have to do that. Right. Just three sentences later. Right. We have a metric, we can enforce the metric when we need to. I've got a question. I've got a question in regard to the temples. There's a couple of people out there. Uh, business associations or whatever were wanting to sponsor 
town halls where either all of the council shows up or only a few of the council show up or whatever, where it can be a Q&A on just general topics, whether it's a complaint session or just they want general information or whatever. My suggestion back to that is that we as a council could periodically, maybe quarterly, hold a, a, a town hall type meeting. Come in and complain to us about anything and ask us about anything. But you're, if I'm interpreting you correctly, that's probably not proper. Normally, town hall sessions do not involve a quorum of the council. And the reason for that is because when you have an agendized item, you have public comment, and it's going to come before you, um, the process of deliberations and hearing staff reports and hearing all the information should come to you in a pretty methodical, um, brown act way. Town hall sessions on particular topics where you have one or two council members happen all the time. Where they say, I know that we have this homelessness, for instance. Like there are town hall meetings on homelessness all the time. So two of you could have a town hall meeting, have question and answer back and forth. Um, the other three of you can't go to that town hall meeting. <laughs> you can't participate in that town hall meeting. Um, and if it's videotaped, you shouldn't watch the town hall meeting, right? Because then you're going to get opinions about things that may come before you. So, um, and then two others could have a town hall meeting on the very same thing. It happens all the time. Well, people will split off or have one person doing it where they're it, just it, having idea exchanges with the public on homelessness. At those particular uh, meetings, um, you don't want to say things like, oh, I know this project is coming before us and I'm pretty sure I'm going to vote yes. That's not something that shouldn't really be happening with that. The deliberation should be happening here and notice me at an open, you know, where it's agendized and people know that's what you're going to talk about. Town hall meetings, um, even if you say it's a town hall meeting on homelessness, very difficult to control what's actually discussed at those meetings. And you find yourself in a conversation and a debate with the public where you're discussing things that go beyond what you're actually noticing. So even if you notice it as a public meeting, if you don't have the whole council, it's not, I don't want you, you know, I wouldn't want people to be discussing things that may come before you that aren't uh, agendized, that should be here where you're talking about those things. So town hall meetings to talk about ideas for homelessness, to um, banter back and forth and have them tell you what they think about it and have you, you know, comment in a general sense on like, you know, maybe something like that can work, maybe we can look into that, we should take that to the council, we should talk about that. You know, generally speaking like that, you're not deliberating about the details of a particular project, you can have those discussions with the public in a town hall. Just not all together, because that needs to be agendized, and like I said, if you're all together, it's very difficult to control those meetings and how that happens. You're not having a moderator there that's, you know, like in a, a regular debate setting where you're talking about controlling what comes out and what the responses are. I have a comment about the, the three minutes to one that seems to talk more and more, go on and on, except myself personally. It's whatever limitations we put on to the public, we ought to put on limitations to ourselves. <laughs> it would be very difficult to conduct this as only three minutes, but who knows? That's up to you guys. Okay. I mean, I, I said there's more hypotheticals, but I don't think we need to necessarily go there because we're at the two hour mark, so I will leave it at that. Are there any more questions? Mr. Collier, if I may. Yeah. So, Brown Act is designed to prevent negotiating transactions, making transactions and deals offline, outside the realm of the public by preventing the majority to participate. Behind closed doors, Behind closed without doors. the public uh, being able to participate yeah. and express the role, their The role voices. of staff is to run the city. The role of us is to be advisors and, and 
have policies. Policies, yeah. And that's a real legal uh, compliance rests with the city attorney and the city manager to advise us about all of this stuff that we've been listening to. Is that not true? It, it, it is in some respects. You have an obligation. We're here to train you on it. Um, turning a blind eye, I didn't know about it. It's not going to be a defense. I'll tell you that right now. My attorneys didn't tell me. Um, that sort of thing. So there is an independent obligation to understand it. So if you have questions or if something's coming up and you're not sure about how it's going to be handled, you should contact Carolyn before um, it gets to that point. Um, undoubtedly, she will be, you know, jumping up and down and you know, no, 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 we can't do this. And you know, sometimes it's hard because no one wants to interrupt deliberation, but. I mean, I don't, I, I do all the time. I, I you know, if, you, if someone's going off topic, I'm going to see where it goes for a minute or two, and then I'm going to be like, this is an agenda. Like, I stop the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, um, even if it's public comment, bantering back and forth, this is inappropriate. You know, this is not a debate. Um, so she'll stop it to some respects, but it, it is, it, there's still that obligation. You know, ignorance is no defense of the law kind of thing. So it, it, that still applies. Um, of course, she's, going to be here, and that's her job, is to make sure that, that everything's in compliance. But some things you can't help. If someone's leaking stuff out of closed session, she's not going to be able to prevent that. If people are having um, meetings that she doesn't know about, and there are three of you talking about a, a city project, she's not going to know about that. So there are things that she's not going to always be privy to um, that would, could be brought up violations. Well, well, counselors, uh, thank you very much for the presentation. We appreciate it. It was an excellent information. It was an excellent review and also just very good information all around the time well spent. So thank you very much. Could I have, thank you. Could I have a question? Sure. Yeah. May I? I don't mind checking out our ticket, Doug Ross, DOUDRS. I'm kind of representing myself, but I've been with the Mirror for 25 years and it's no secret that it's been sort of the uh, ground zero, the battleground, in some ways in California and the West, on um, the Brown Act. Uh, so the vastness of my question is difficult for me to condense into a small question, but here it is. Um, the Brown Act uh, seems to become, um, no matter what uh, happens, uh, in the control of the government, public, the public agency. So, uh, for example, right now, what I, uh, if I may use a computer analogy, what we're looking at right now here is wrong, read-only memory. So um, I'm faced with wrong in my decision on the newspaper. Um, I, I have to interpolate, not to be wordy, given that you were discussing the three minutes, but I'd like to, I'd like to just say on behalf of Tim Cruz, who passed away three years ago, that I for over 20 years was in ground zero. Uh, what became sort of considered the newspaper was the enemy, looked at by public agency and public servants as the enemy. Well, setting aside my own view as to whether or not the uh, private sector, which to me makes a lot of the actual policy with its money and its uh, working in puppeteering of public agencies, Setting aside that, um, I think public agencies seem to have a structural advantage in uh, the sense that uh, the Brown Act and whether you violate it or not violate it 
is in their hands. So if they're violated or not violated, then by the time the public has been affected by it, the cat, as it were, is already out of the bag. And um, I've never seen in my entire career eclipsing three different uh, cities of where I've been a reporter of any success on the part of the general public to uh, be anything but a victim of violations of the Brown Act in that the public agency has the attorneys and funded attorneys, whereas the public is more or less um, only has, has an attorney representation in lieu in the sense that it's their city and it's the city attorney. But in, re in reality, the, uh, in the past 30 years, the, the scenario has been sort of like the uh, public agency has easily been able to be the bully and the general public, and I'm citing three different cities, uh, is the victim. And that's not to me why the Brown Act was um, concocted or what you want to say. But to try and economize my remarks, I'm, I'm not looking for any uh, answer or solution. I just want to say that even in my reporting for the mirror, I've noticed a lot of people will come up to me the next day or two days later and say, you know, was that a violation of the Brown Act? And I want to say, you know, I wish I had an attorney's license, you know, because then I could have the force majeure. But I don't. I'm a newspaper man. You know, we're just like a posted sign, you know, uh, when you're driving along the road. It says uh, the posted limit is uh, 70. Well, I got to get to this next city, so I'm going to go 80, and I'll just take my lumps. And I think that's regrettable. And I think that uh, cloud of fog and smoke has enveloped the Brown Act to such a great degree in California. And speaking as a newsman, has to uh, span the distance between um, writing about bake sales, if you will, and on the same thing, be uh, grand enough to be able to interpret the, the large scale of uh, laws, whether people or, and or public agencies follow them. Um, editorials to me are just a lot of times nothing more than a memorandum. They, they don't have any force of law or force majeure. Uh, in conclusion, what I'd like to recommend uh, as a useful service and to open the, open the door between this uh, the public agency having control of the ROM and, and uh, the fact that two years can, if, if there's a violation, a long time can go by, you might want to call it litigator's time. Well, litigator's time isn't the same as press time. My deadline is tomorrow evening. But litigators often have a year, two years, and then the state controller's office, they uh, have a long backlog, be that as it may. I, I think that a bridge needs to build, be built between ROM and RAM, to extend the analogy that the public agency has a great way of structural control over. Um, should, people shouldn't have to call or go on the web or go to email to get an immediate answer. I think when I saw first, and if you'll give me another minute or two. Yeah, another minute? Is that one Thank you. <laughs> See, the problem I'm having is that I, I'd like to recommend an RX, but I don't have one, and that's what I'm ple pleading for on the behalf of the general public very 
if you're here this evening. Um, some kind of thing where there's more innocent um, interpretations. It shouldn't have to occur that the public agency is going to go like, well, we're just going to do this and then hope, you know, maybe, maybe it violates the Brown Act or maybe it doesn't. Like the public maybe should have some kind of word in or role in advance. Um, well, I think the can, can, can I stop? Can I stop there? And you've got my point. Is that good? Yes. Some kind of a door needs to be opened uh, for faster uh, public interaction. Is that good? Thank you. Thank you. If I may, I'd like to call a quick five-minute recess so um, we can stretch our legs, and then we'll come back and. Address item five. Finding number two, 
And uh, the response, in a nutshell, is basically that um, uh, the applicant and the property owner actually signed conditions of approval, agreeing not to have uh, people, not not to have guests stay at his facility and property for more than 30 days. And so, therefore, um, because it was an, it was a conditional use permit for an extended stay motel, he did owe the city for um, TOT tax for the 15 months that it was an extended stay hotel. That's basically. Point of order, Mr. Mayor. Are we taking up each of these responses individually? And yes. 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 Okay. <clears throat> and we're gonna address the TOT tax first. And then the uh, emergency medical, and then the sewer, separately. <clears throat> I think uh, council has all had an opportunity to read the letter. Questions? Yes, sir. I have no questions, Mr. Mayor. Do you have a comment? Thank you. Yes, tell me this uh, grand jury report, uh, or the grand jury report, I should say, pertaining to this matter was poorly written and grossly inaccurate. It, it was factually incorrect. The city of Willow's responses are based on the factual information that actually occurred and took place in the full context responding to grand jury's uh, comments and recommendations. I fully uh, fully agree uh, with the uh, information as submitted. And like I said, it's factual information and it's exactly what occurred. That's all I have, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Thank you. Comments from Mr. Bottom or Mr. Schrake? Pleasure to the council. Mr. Mayor, I move that the uh, uh, I move to approve the attached letter, attachment one, as the city of Willow's response to the grand jury report in reference to the, uh, uh, quote, do you know what TOT tax is, unquote, matter. Do have a second? Second. Um, we don't need a roll call on this, do we? No. Does the public have any comments? Hearing none, all those in favor of the motion signify by saying aye. 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 Motion carries. Second item is emergency services medical medical services um, response to the grand jury report. Excuse me, Mayor. I, I didn't see if Council Member Spray I did. said I on the did I, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Just wanted to read it that way. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Um, so, for the medical emergency medical response, um, this, for the most part, um, the in the findings and the response to the findings, um, which was again prepared uh, wholly in concert with the fire chief. Um, mostly, the city agrees with uh, most of the findings. Some of the recommendations, um, the time frame, either. Um, you know, for example, in finding one that if the smaller outline fire departments are closed close due to a lack of funding and put a burden on Orland and Willis Fire Department. Um, and the response is that we agree with the finding, but the recommendation, uh, the County of Glen has no stake in the fire protection and until recently has provided little to no support to the rural Glen County Fire Districts. State mandates have increased workload and liability for these small all-volunteer departments and districts compounding the problem. So. Um, we agree with the finding, but um, disagree with the recommendation uh, from 
the grand jury and writing more, you know, having more grant writers and going after more grants, for example. Um, with finding number two, um, the city again agrees with the finding and the project is well underway um, to work on the recommendation of the grand jury. Finding number three, uh, Lucas being so beneficial would be imperative for each rural fire department to have a minimum of one Lucas machine on site. And the city partially agrees with the finding, however, the timeline that is recommended um, by the grand jury by October 2023 is unrealistic and not possible. And so um, the re response to the recommendation number three is to, um, is the Willis Fire Department has been awarded funding to purchase its first Lucas device as part of a Homeland Security uh, grant, and so we're actually working on that. And then uh, finding number three, um, not all SCBA masks can be used with all their tanks, and the response to the finding from the city is that we agree with this finding. Um, sorry, with finding number five, yeah, I apologize, finding number five. These were the only findings that we were asked to respond to, so, there, so it might look like there's some missing, but the fire department, Willow's fire department was asked to respond to um, one, two, three, and five. So that's why I'm jumping ahead. Nothing's missing here. Um, and so the fire, Willow's fire department was awarded a regional assistance firefighters grant, so um, which has garnered over eight hundred thousand dollars. And so we're working to replace um, all of those um, SCBA masks right now. So um, for the most part, pretty much agree with the findings, with some limited um, recommendations, a little different than the grand jury, but mostly in agreement. Thank you. Council comments? Yeah, Mr. Mayor, the, the city as well as responses were, were factually correct and spot on. Very good. Good job. That's all right, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Anybody else? Members of the public? Yes, Mr. Mayor and council members. I'm just curious. I had asked the question earlier in, in an inappropriate time. Um, it showed that this was uh, agenda was amended. Um, can you tell me the time and date that it was amended? That this, uh, because I, I believe when I looked at the agenda originally when it was posted, that it was just the training and then the added from the grand jury report was added at a later time. Is that correct? Well, right now we're discussing the grand jury report. So, when was it posted? Is my question. Um, based on this question and answers, I can answer that question, Mr. Mayor, since I posted it. Uh, that would have been uh, yesterday at 3.30 p.m. Okay. Didn't you also resend out to the distribution? Yes. So the distribution list was re-notified. Right. Somehow I got removed from that distribution list. Well, it was legally posted 20, more than 24 hours before yeah. the special meeting. Yeah. Okay. That was my question. Pleasure to counsel. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I move to approve the attached letter. Attachment one is the City of Willow's response to the Grand Jury Report in reference to emergency medical services and submitted to the presiding judge of the Grand Jury. Second. Motion by Councilmember Hanson, seconded by Councilmember Budden uh, to approve the letter as written. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Item 5C, the Grand Jury Report, Willow Sewer Report. Mr. Sprague? Yes. Um, I do have some comments in regard to this. With all due respect to the city manager who 
did an excellent job in response to this, but she's walked into this what? movie. I'm sorry. Just a quick point of order. If he's recused from this, is he up? Does he speak? If he's recused, then he needs to leave. Yeah, he needs to step down. That's right. If you've recused from this issue, then then you, you need to step off out of the room. Um. Okay. I recused myself. Yes. Before. I'm pondering that just a moment. Okay. I don't want to debate with you. Um, my concern is that the responses, um, I think she unknowingly has made some comments in here that are not factually correct on some of those items okay. on that. So I, Okay, I, I would, let's see. My understanding is that you were accused from this matter. Okay. Um, okay. I did, yes. So then, then as a as a full recusal, then you wouldn't be able to participate in the in the matter. And I'm cranking my. That's okay. Can you say again? If you've recused from the issue on the the item when it was first on, right? Then you cannot participate in the issue. Okay, even though the first time was in closed session and this is in public, I still have to be recused from. Yes, from this. Do I need to leave that for this discussion? Just for the just for the issue, yes. Okay, thank you. So the the letter here is in response to the grand jury report for the Willow Sewer Report. Um, and I want to state for the record um, that this was prepared in conjunction with the city engineer. Um, like all of these, you know, I consult with all of our staff and our contractors. They're not that, that work day to day on some of these issues. This is not done in a vacuum. So with that, the um, finding one was the city of Willows used money from storm drain development impact fee accounts to pay for non-sewer related costs. And the recommendation was to reveal those funds, um, well, and release the outcome, uh, basically conduct an audit. Um, and I think the suggestion was a state audit to um, get to the bottom of whether or not that finding is correct. The city wholly disagrees with the finding. Storm drain development impact fees cannot be used for sewer-related costs as the finding it states above um, and as the finding implies. Um, second, storm drain impact and sewer enterprise monies were used as matching funds for an economic development administration grant and were used legally for storm drain-related improvements um, and sewage improvements. And the recommendation will not be implemented because it's not warranted and the city's actions are legal. Finding two, the city of Willows used money from the 318 Enterprise Fund to pay for non-sewer related costs. And um, the city performed, again, the request was to perform an audit. The response to the finding is the city wholly disagrees with the finding. Um, no 318 Enterprise Funds were used to pay for non-sewer related costs as it relates to the EDA grant funded project in the South Willows. The recommendation will not be implemented because it's not warranted and the city's actions are legal. Finding number three, the city of Willows used $535,000 of $715,000 from the storm drain development impact fee and sewer enterprise fund to use a matching funds for Basin Street Bridge leading to an industrial complex. And uh, again, it was about the recommendation was to re repay those funds to the sewer and storm drain funds. Um, 
The city wholly disagrees with this finding, and basically these were match monies that were used for the EDA grant uh, mentioned earlier. And um, you know, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but outlined is all the kinds of work that were done for that EDA grant. Much of it was not just a bridge, but it was also sewage and uh, stormwater drain infrastructures that were very costly and very extensive. Um, and are detailed in this letter. So the recommendation, the response is that the um, city will not be implementing it. It's not warranted in the city's actions are legal. The city of Willow zones 35 parcels, finding number four, the city of Willow zones 35 parcels that have been exempted from paying store assessments and or fees. And the recommendation is that the city pay for each parcel owned by the city from 2019 to current April 2024. The city wholly disagrees with the finding. The city was not exempted from paying sewer assessment or fees until recently city staff were unaware that the city was not paying the same sewage fees as the public and should be on city-owned property. Um, the recommendation has been implemented and the city currently pays sewage fees on city-owned properties. I might just note that this was implemented prior to my appointment, so over two years ago, this was added to the city's um, water bill for sewage fees on its own properties where there are sewage hookups. Finding number five, many residents reported that they did not get notices until the day of the meeting for, I'm assuming, although it's not articulated here, they mean the 218 study meeting, um, and the city of Willis should perform another wastewater study. Uh, the city wholly disagrees with the finding, and BS, the firm that conducted the rate study, publicly noticed the community of the potential sewage rate increases according to state law. The recommendation will not be implemented because it's not warranted in the city's actions were legal. Finding number six, the city of Willows has violated the Brown Act and passing up the money and charging residents based on the MBS wastewater rate study report. The recommendation is that in the future, the city of Willows needs to fully follow the Brown Act. The response is the city wholly disagrees with the finding. The city of Willows and city council did not violate the Brown Act by approving Prop 218 sewage rate increase and implementing it, and the recommendation will not be implemented. Finding seven, the city manager is evaluated by the current City Council yearly, currently the city manager contract does not include a performance evaluation. The city council should amend the city manager's contract to require yearly performance evaluations, including yearly goals by July 1, 23. The city wholly disagrees with the finding. First, city manager's performance evaluation is completely unrelated to the subject matter of this report and investigation. Willow's sewer report. Second, the city manager's contract does not state that there will be a performance evaluation in April of each, each year. It, sorry, it states that it, there will be a performance evaluation in April of each year. Lastly, the city manager's contract and performance evaluation are a personnel matter and outside the purview of the grand jury. The recommendation will not be implemented because it is not warranted. Last finding, I think I hope, uh, is the city manager evaluation is based on performance and goals as well as mutual trust and common objectives. And the recommendation is the city council biannually evaluate the annual goals set between the city manager and the city council and measuring achieve goals to ensure the council and city manager are in agreement with the leadership of the city. And again, the city wholly disagrees. Again, this finding is irrelevant and completely unrelated to the subject matter of this report called Willow's Sewer Report. The recommendation will not be implemented. Budget the council or comments? Uh, yeah, Mr. Mayor, uh, sadly, once again, the grand jury report pertaining to this matter is extremely inaccurate and factually incorrect. And then the city of responses are based on factual information. That's all I have, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Mr. Bunn? I agree with what he said. Members of the public. Good 
evening, Mr. Mayor and other councilmen. When this all came up, I went to the assessor's office to look up some of the city-owned parcels, and I did not have any luck. So I asked one of the, the assistant to the assessor uh, if he could give me a hand, and he tried to pull it up, and he couldn't pull it up. He said, let me take this list back to my desk. And he come back in about 15 minutes and he said, I cannot pull any of those city parcel numbers up. And I said, then what's wrong? And he goes, let me check something. He went back to the assessor who wasn't there that day to his desk and used his computer. And he come back and these lists of 35 numbers have been changed to exempt numbers and they are not paying their fees. They cannot be found on the public records because they've had the numbers, the parcel numbers changed to an exempt number. So before I signed this letter, I would be really, really cautious about that. City so service, service fees are being collected by Cal Water on the Cal Water Fund, is it correct? So the city, like all government, is often an exempt category. So on the assessor's parcel, it's not surprising that we're listed as exempt. But when this was brought to the attention of my predecessor, these are commercial properties. Other than these, the two rental houses that we own over here, which was recently corrected, and then during the budget, we did a complete two-year allocation. We went back two years and paid for those two rental properties because they're residential and we don't get billed by the county. Other than those two properties recently, the rest of the city's properties are commercial properties. And my predecessor added those to the Cal Water Bill since they're commercial and commercial properties are billed by Cal Water, not by the county. Uh, if I may, are you seeing this as a clarifier that in one case they're identified as, uh, as exempt and, we, and suggesting we didn't pay, but in reality they're identified as something else somewhere else and we are paying? I, I think the challenge that you're going to hear more about in the future is that we have two different entities, one's quasi-public and one is public, billing for our sewage for different kinds of parcels, which actually creates a tremendous amount of confusion. So that's one issue, but I, I, I guess I could go to the county and tell them to make us unexempt, but I, I don't know what it, how it would matter other than those two residential properties, because the rest of our properties are considered really commercial, basically, where we're listed as commercial because these are public buildings. Only residential and now multifamily are billed by the county. Is he not saying we didn't pay, and are we not saying we did? We didn't pay prior to it being caught another time in the past. We which I, under your predecessors. Correct. My understanding is, yes, that they, we are paying now. I don't know exactly how far back because okay. it was caught at some point, but it wasn't an exemption, it was just, it was an oversight. Um, and now we're paying on a Cal Water Bill. Other than the two residential, which we have to manually do during the budget cycle we did this year. Okay, we're talking about two different things. Yeah. Prop 218 says, cities cannot exempt their properties, period. The city is not, is exempt from property tax, not from the water, and it's paid, being paid through Cal Water. No. They're talking about these two houses over here only. You said 35 parcels. There's 35 parcels. We're in public comment. Yeah, we are in public comment. We're in public comment. We just had our public comment. Okay. 
There's 35 parcels that are marked exempt that are not allowed to be exempt. That's all I've got to say. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mayor, I move to approve the attached letter of attachment number one as the City of Willow's response to the grand jury report in reference to the Willow's sewer report and then submitted to the presiding judge of the grand jury. The sewer fee is collected on the California water bill 
So if we change the word exempted to something else, would it be okay? You know, this I would just like to know. No, we're gonna, I'm going to call it. They're not exempted. Well, it sounds like semantics now. Yeah, show us the bill. Show us the payment. I call for the vote. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Um, with that, we will adjourn meeting.